Hello, and welcome back to the History of Violence. I took a really long Christmas break, so let's just call this the start of Season 2. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing a short series of episodes about the Middle East, with a focus on Iraq and Iran. I had this planned before the recent flare-up involving the assassination of Soleimani and the downing of a passenger jet in Tehran, but now it's more relevant than ever. My intention isn't to give a comprehensive history of the international relations of the Middle East, but rather to explore the historical roots of contemporary conflict in the region through individual episodes. I'm also going to get some guests on to talk about certain aspects of this, so you'll get a bit of a break from my dulcet tones. Before starting this series, I want to give a disclaimer. It's not my intention to orientalise the Middle East by treating it as somewhere uniquely violent or conflict-prone. The Middle East, however you define that, has a rich and complex culture that shouldn't be viewed purely through a Western lens of religious violence and oil wars. It's neither the most violent region in the world, a debate honour which goes to Latin America, or the most underdeveloped. However, violence is the focus of this podcast, so that is what I'll be looking at. Plus, the history of the Middle East is something which the rest of the world should be talking about. Firstly, because the region is so geographically and geopolitically significant. More importantly, many of the contemporary conflicts in the Middle East can be traced back to actions taken by Western powers, Britain and France in the early 20th century, and America more recently. Violence in the Middle East can spiral out, affecting European and American politics, and its causes can also often be traced back to these faraway countries as well. Today, I'm going to talk about how the modern Middle East came into being, as a series of nation-states built in grubby deals and declarations between Britain, France and other Western powers in the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. Probably the most talked about at the moment is the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a classic colonial carve-up in which two European diplomats took a ruler and drew a bunch of straight lines on the map, creating problems for years to come. Equally important is the Balfour Declaration, which promised a Jewish homeland in Palestine, contradicting the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which also contradicted earlier British promises to Arab leaders. These are just some of the series of agreements which shaped the emergence of nation-states in the Middle East, most of which were self-serving and mutually contradictory colonial power grabs. The cumulative effect was to create artificial borders which ignored the patchwork of ethnically, religiously and linguistically diverse groups in the region. This also contributed to a series of weak and unstable governments popped up by quickly declining and increasingly disinterested colonial masters, and in turn created a justified sense of resentment over foreign exploitation and broken promises. It's a complicated story, so I'll try and focus on just the most important parts. From the 1300s until the end of the First World War, the Middle East was primarily controlled by the Ottoman Empire. The rulers of the Ottoman Empire faced a problem which all large imperial states have to contend with. How do you efficiently manage a territory which contains different ethnic and religious groups? Ethno-linguistic and even religious diversity was a surprisingly common feature of many countries throughout history, and this was especially true of the Middle East and Anatolia. When you consider the size of the Ottoman Empire, which stretched from the Danube to the Nile at its peak, then you can imagine how these difficulties multiplied. The Mongolian Empire pursued deliberate religious tolerance, sponsoring various religions and actively encouraging diversity. The British Empire saw and promoted Protestantism as the highest form of religion, but in most cases didn't force it on the common people of its colonies. Indeed, Hindus were by far the most populous religious group in the British Empire, followed by Muslims and then Christians. 
This contrasted with Portuguese policy on the Indian subcontinent, which saw inquisitions and forced conversions. That said, religious policy towards Africa was less hands-off. Going further back, the Roman Empire tended to incorporate the religious heritage of the people it conquered, managing diversity within a sort of forced cultural exchange programme. The Spanish Empire's policy of forced and violent conversion was probably the most brutal imperial response to encountering new religions and new ethnicities. The Ottomans followed a tradition of tolerance modelled on earlier Islamic states. Non-Muslims often paid the jiza or attacks on non-Muslims and in return were granted religious autonomy. This developed into the millet system in the 18th century, a system in which different religious communities could follow their own rules with minimal oversight. The term millet comes from the Arabic word mila, which means nation. However, the initial focus was on confessional rather than ethnic groups, making it a rather different model from the modern conception of a nation. Christians could follow canon law, Muslims followed Sharia, and Jews the Halakha. This kind of ad hoc religious independence made sense, because the Ottoman Empire was a patchwork of diversity. For example, the British Empire was diverse in some ways, but each area was fairly homogenous. The UK and Anglo-Saxon settler colonies were largely white and Protestant, while India was majority Hindu, for example. However, in the Ottoman Empire, the various ethnic and religious groups were living side by side. In her 1904 book, Lucy Mary Jane Garnet claimed, No country in the world, perhaps, contains a population so heterogeneous as that of Turkey. Ethnically Greek Christians lived alongside Turkic Muslims in southern Anatolia. Sunni and Shia Muslims were spread across the whole empire. There were various different Jewish communities, bolstered by the influx of Sephardic Jews fleeing persecution from Spain and Portugal. Istanbul, meanwhile, was the most cosmopolitan city in the world, the symbolic and actual crossroads between East and West. This patchwork of diversity was held together by the light-touch Ottoman administration. This millet system adapted over time in response to changes. The Tamziat reforms from the mid-1800s through to the early 1900s were a response to rising nationalism, and so the focus switched from religious groups onto the governance and integration of distinct ethno-linguistic communities. So rather than Muslims and Christians and Jews, the focus was on managing differences between Arabs, Turks, Greeks and Armenians. This sweeping set of reforms represented an attempt to modernise the state, centralising power while guaranteeing equality under the law. However, these reforms failed to stem the rising tide of nationalism, particularly on the Arab and European peripheries, and the Ottoman Empire embarked on a slow, long decline. As with the issue of religious diversity, it was hard to see how modern, ethnically homogenous nation-states could be established, given that ethno-linguistic groups were often quite spread out. The solution to this problem, when the fall of the empire eventually came, would in many cases be forced population transfers, partition, and all the horrors which that inevitably brings. The exact source of this quotation is unknown, but the idea that the Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe potentially dates back to 1853, the run-up to the Crimean War. The phrase has also been attributed to the Russian Tsar Nicholas. That the Ottoman Empire was in terminal decline was something that was widely known and believed by European commentators and policymakers at the time, at least a generation before its eventual collapse. The Ottomans were still able to field effective armies until close to the end, as the Triple Entente forces discovered during the disastrous Gallipoli campaign. Some historians, such as Mustafa Minawi, have argued that the Ottoman Empire could have survived and thrived if it hadn't been for their eventual defeat in World War I. 
However, there were clear internal pressures stemming primarily from its outdated and overly agrarian economy, the inability to control nationalist uprisings and a resultingly weak central government. By the early 1900s, the vultures were circling. Austria, despite its own decline, was successfully funding rebellions in the Balkans. France and Britain were eyeing a carve-up in the Middle East, and the sprawling Russian Empire remained the Ottomans' most implacable foe. While the fall of the empire might not have been inevitable, it was long expected and anticipated. The Triple Entente of Britain, France and Russia started making secret agreements to carve up the Ottoman Empire before World War I was even finished. These agreements were all in service of these countries' own geostrategic goals, and crucially they were put in place to prevent these countries from turning on each other at the end of the war. The first major agreement was the Constantinople Agreement, also known as the Straits or the Istanbul Agreement. Russia was suffering greatly and looked likely to sign a separate peace with Germany and the Central Powers, leaving Britain and France at a disadvantage. The UK and France decided to buy off Russia by agreeing to give them control over Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, and the Straits, in return for Russia accepting French and British influence in the Middle East. Russia were keen to get control over Istanbul for both cultural and practical reasons. Constantinople had been the seat of the Orthodox religion, and winning it back from the Muslim Ottomans was a long-term goal of the Orthodox Russian Empire. With sites of such religious importance as the Hagia Sophia, Istanbul-Constantinople held a very special place in the Russian imperial imagination, similar to Jerusalem for many other countries. The Russians even went as far as to set up a committee to deal with the protection of Byzantine historical sites once they took over control. However, there was also a deeper geostrategic reason for Russia to prioritise control over Istanbul. Russia has, throughout its history, struggled to compete as a maritime power due to the low number of warm water ports. Despite being a massive land empire, Russia was boxed in by the British and French navies in Europe, while its failure to defeat Japan left it isolated in the east. Vladivostok, the great eastern port, was frozen for around a quarter of the year. A solution to this would be to gain access to the Mediterranean Sea via the Black Sea. But doing this required two things. Firstly, controlling Crimea. This is a theme which we still see coming up today. Secondly, getting to the Med from the Black Sea requires it to pass through the Bosphorus Straits, a narrow water passage which is straddled by Istanbul. It also requires passage through the Dardanelles slightly to the south, an area which is also controlled by the Ottomans and commanded via Istanbul. So, whoever controlled Istanbul controlled access to and from the Black Sea. This was access which Russia desperately needed, but which their Ottoman enemies would have prevented. However, before the war could be finished and Russian ambitions realised, the Bolshevik Revolution swept through the country. The lack of Russian control over the Black Sea was arguably a major factor in the collapse of the empire and the emergence of the Soviet Union, since the supply problems could potentially have been alleviated by the opening up of a Mediterranean route. Although the agreement never came to pass, the Istanbul Agreement did set the tone for British and French imperial policy. Specifically, it set in stone the idea that France and Britain would get to set up two spheres of influence in the post-Ottoman Middle East. The British and French were keen on expanding their influence in the region for reasons which will be wearingly familiar to anyone following Middle Eastern politics today. Oil, economic influence and port access. These countries discussed the creation of new railway lines to facilitate economic expansion in the region, while the British were keen to access the large oil fields around Mosul, the city that would go on to become the jewel in the crown of ISIS today. 
Some things never change. Negotiations over what would become known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement started in 1915 and ran until the following year. A number of people were involved in the process, but the two namesakes are Mark Sykes on the British side and François-Georges Picot on the French. Both men were career diplomats and both had expertise in the Middle East. Picot worked in North Africa during the war to protect French interests, and Sykes was known as something of an Arabophile and was a trusted advisor to the government due to his knowledge of the culture and history in the region. That said, Britain's other famous diplomat to the Middle East, T.E. Lawrence, spoke poorly of Sykes' strategic abilities. The imaginative advocate of unconvincing world movements. A bundle of prejudices, intuitions, half-sciences. His ideas were of the outside, and he lacked the patience to test his materials before choosing the style of building. He would sketch out in a few dashes a new world, all out of scale, but vivid as a vision of some sides of the things we hoped. Whatever the intellectual and professional merits of both men, the agreement they sketched out was flawed from the outset. Firstly, it was a horrific oversimplification of the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. If you want to see a physical depiction of colonial legacies, it's possible to look at Africa and the Middle East on a map. Most countries in the world have their borders determined by geographical features, rivers and seas and mountain ranges. But Africa and parts of the Middle East have straight lines. They look like they were drawn on a map with rulers from some office in Paris or Brussels or London, which is exactly what happened. The arrogance of this can be summed up in how Sykes described his plan for the region to Prime Minister Asquith. I should like to be able to draw a line from the E in Accra to the last K in Kirkuk. To destroy and create borders so arbitrarily shows just how little colonial policymakers understood about the region. The issue of straight lines on the map is often pointed to as the great evil of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and there is some truth in that. Although the exact six people borders never actually came into effect, it was the policies of the colonial powers which helped to create the modern borders, the modern borders which denied a homeland to the Kurds, for example. The idea of British and French mandates survived, even if the precise borders set out by Six and Pico didn't, roughly creating the modern borders of Iraq, the Palestinian territories, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. By ignoring the patchwork of regional and local identities, foreign powers set the stage for numerous conflicts, both large and small. However, perhaps a greater problem with the agreement is that it underscored a more general sense of chaos, mistrust and incompetence in the region, in particular with regards to British colonial policy. Around the same time as the Sykes-Picot negotiations were happening, Henry McMahon, the British High Commissioner to Egypt, was engaged in a correspondence with Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca. The deal forged here concerned the Arab revolts, generally seen through the eyes of Lawrence of Arabia in the West. The basic contours of this deal were that the Arabs would rise up against their Ottoman masters with British support, helping the Triple Entente by opening up a new front in the war. This would also serve to counteract the Ottomans' declaration of a jihad against their enemies, which was a particular problem for Britain given the huge Muslim population in India. In return, the Arabs would be allowed to form an independent state covering most of modern-day Middle East. Clearly, promises made in the secret discussions between McMahon and Hussein ran in contrary to the decisions made in the secret negotiations between Sykes and Pico. The Sykes-Pico plan had critics even at the time. Edward House, a senior advisor to Lord Balfour, the then Foreign Secretary, saw that it would create problems for years to come, stating that 
It is all bad, and I told Balfour so. They are making it a breeding place for future war. The Sykes-Picot plan also went against the emerging liberal paradigm, pushing for national self-determination, whose most serious adherent was the US President Woodrow Wilson. It's partly for these reasons that it was kept secret, but mostly because it would have inflamed the region. In particular, it would have revealed to the Arabs that the British were prepared to go back on their earlier promises to them. Two unforced errors brought the British-Arab deal crashing down. One was this aforementioned Sykes-Picot agreement, which was revealed to the public after the fall of the Russian Empire by the, uh, to the Bolsheviks. The new communist government renounced Russian claims on the Ottoman Empire and published a full text of the Sykes-Picot agreement in the state newspaper Pravda on November 23, 1917. The Guardian then published the story a few days later in the UK, causing a great deal of embarrassment, friction and anger. The other piece of information that undermined British-Arab relations was freely released, or more accurately, declared by the British government. Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary who authorised all of these deals, put his name to what would be known as the Balfour Declaration. This was a promise made in a letter to Lord Rothschild, a prominent leader in the British Jewish and International Zionist movement. Yeah, those Rothschilds, for all the tinfoil hat enthusiasts. This is probably the most well-known of the declarations, and perhaps the most consequential, so I will read the most important section. 67 words that changed the world. His Majesty's government's view would favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. This was the first declaration of support from a major power in favour of Zionism, and it set the stage for the establishment of Israel as a Jewish homeland after World War II. It was particularly important because Palestine was an area which Britain intended to control after World War I, following the logic of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So it wasn't just a hypothetical declaration of support, but became something Britain could potentially actually deliver on. This was met with jubilation in the Zionist community, and was supported by the US and other British allies. However, it evoked the fury of the local Christian and Muslim population in Palestine, as you can imagine. Only 10% of the local population was Jewish at the time, so this would involve a huge importation of what was essentially a foreign population. It also sparked a backlash in the Arab world more broadly, partly on cultural and religious grounds, but more specifically because it amounted to a swift and direct betrayal by Britain and her allies. The West had promised the Arab world independence after years of Ottoman rule, but less than a year after agreeing to that, they had already started to give away their land to foreigners, while parceling other bits out for themselves. The collective effect of Sykes-Picot and the Balfour Declaration was to provide cast-iron evidence of colonial double-dealing and Western perfidy. This betrayal is at least as consequential as the misdrawn map. This double-dealing by Britain is something which I think presaged the decline of the British Empire, as different advisors and branches of the government pursued directly contradictory policies. Even after the publication of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the UK continued to selectively support efforts at Arab unity, even while undermining the same goal elsewhere. This isn't just as simple as crafty British diplomacy. It was arguably a sign of strategic incoherence in an empire which was too large to effectively manage and which was starting its own decline. This lack of long-term strategy in the Middle East is something which is arguably affecting the United States today. 
as it seems unable to deal with its own complex web of relationships and alliances. This has led to farcical stories of Pentagon-backed militias fighting CIA-backed militias as a bewildered Imperial Leviathan starts to attack its own tail. This is something we'll come back to in later episodes. The ripple effects of this era of Imperial policy on today's Middle East are too numerous to discuss, so I'll focus on a few of the most familiar and high-profile examples. We can trace the roots of the Arab-Israeli conflicts which persisted throughout the latter half of the 20th century to the colonial policies discussed above. Not only did Britain set in motion the establishment of a Jewish homeland, but the underhanded and dishonest way in which it treated its Arab allies on this matter helped ensure that the early history of Israel was as acrimonious as possible. They took a site which was already of huge religious significance and then promised it to two different communities. It's this which led US negotiator Aaron David Miller to dub the region the much-too-promised land. This ensured that when pan-Arabism re-emerged in its Nasserist and Ba'athist forms, it was underscored by an anti-Western and anti-Jewish sentiment. The border created by France and Britain also helped to facilitate similar ethnic conflicts elsewhere in the Middle East. Specifically, these borders broke up large and somewhat contiguous ethnic groups like the Kurds and the Druze across several different nations in which they were always the minority. Rather than having a Kurdistan, we had seen the Kurds fight for their rights and independence across Turkey, Iraq, Syria and Iran. Of course, we can't lay all the blame for these ethnic conflicts at the feet of outside powers, but there is a clear historical legacy which persists to this day. Interestingly, Daesh or ISIS made the ending of the Sykes-Pico a clear part of their narrative, insofar as they portrayed themselves as being a reaction against Western imperialism. The rise of ISIS owes more to the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the outbreak of the Syrian civil war than it does to British colonialism in any direct sense. However, the states of Syria and Iraq, weak and ethnically divided as they are, were created in this colonial carve-up, and it's this which set the stage for the rise of ISIS. I think that this is the broader and more important legacy of Western colonialism and the raft of secret, contradictory agreements which shaped the modern Middle East. The fundamental misdesign of these borders by foreign powers led to states which mostly had weak national identities and deep-seated ethnic divisions. This is a context which was sure to breed civil conflict, coups and authoritarianism. Similarly, the British and French left behind them a rash of weak, corrupt and ineffectual governments. Both powers created political systems in their own image, republics for the French and constitutional monarchies for the British. With some exception, these were poorly managed experiments. Many fell quickly to coups and civil wars, while others survived through brutality. The colonial legacy in part explains how such a naturally wealthy region can be characterised by low levels of development and poor governance. Despite the strength of this story, particularly around Sykes-Pico, it is worth questioning the assumption that the problems in the Middle East can be placed entirely on misguided plans. The European solutions to the problems of governing the Middle East were self-serving and idiotic, but that does not mean that alternative solutions would have been easily found. The rise of empires is marked with highly organised violence, and the fall of empires is generally marked with chaos. At the risk of engaging in counterfactual speculation, it's quite likely that conflict would have broken out in the Middle East even without Western meddling, or if the Western powers had taken a different approach. 
for example, rather than creating arbitrary national borders with no regard to ethnic populations, partition and population transference were the preferred solution at the western end of the Ottoman Empire, with the Greek population of Anatolia being marched to Greece while the Muslim populations of Greece were sent in the opposite direction. This created the modern states of Greece and Turkey, but came at a high cost. Deaths and dislocation during the process were the initial toll. Meanwhile, Greece suffered occupation and civil war at a later date, admittedly for different reasons. Ethnic partition was similarly costly in India during the dissolution of the British Empire. Far from solving problems of ethnic conflict on the Indian subcontinent, the haphazard attempt to create separate Hindu and Muslim states has simply led to cyclical riots and pogroms within each country, as well as a long-running border dispute between two nuclear-armed powers. It's easy in hindsight to say that the Kurds should have had a homeland, and it certainly is something they deserve, but there is no reason to think that it would have been without its own potential flashpoints. It's impossible to know what would have happened without Western imperialism following the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but it's relatively simple to see what the results of it have been. Artificial borders created artificial nations, partially explaining the retreat to religion and ethnicity as an alternative source of community. Not to say there isn't national stories and national identities in the region, but rather that, in many cases, these don't match up to the political borders. On a more material level, the legacy of European colonial oversight in the region is that of weak states with ineffective governments. Ethno-religious antagonism is a major factor in most Middle Eastern conflicts, but we shouldn't view this as a result of some exotic Eastern blood feud. The cure for ethnic conflict isn't homogenous populations, it's strong, responsive and effective governments which can mediate conflict and deliver a good standard of living to all of the population and to all of the different communities. The primary crime of the Saints Pico approach isn't that it created straight lines on the map, although that was a problem, but mostly that it was part of a wider programme of colonial exploitation which robbed the local populations of the power to create their own institutions, their own nations or to control their own future. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, that was kind of a long one. Um, I'll be back in a few weeks with uh, hopefully a guest interview um, on a similar subject. And we'll keep going with these for about four or five episodes. Um, anyway, thanks very much. Please like, share, subscribe, etc. Cheers. Mm-hmm.